Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. We're beginning a new series today in the book of Numbers, of all places. That sounds exciting. Don't all jump out of your chairs at once. Yeah. As the kids sprint out of here. Um, actually, the, we're going to be in this for three weeks. It's a, it's a really large book, but there's so much in it. It's actually a pretty exciting book when you get into it. You get through the first ten chapters. And after that, it kind of livens up a bit. Um, and I'm doing the first ten chapters this morning, right? Okay, yeah. So I'm going to have to really live things up. But uh, the name of the series is called Wanderers, Wanderers, and, uh, but today's specific title is Team Faithful, and you'll find that out because really through the book of Numbers, there's an overarching theme of faithfulness that needs to be established, and uh, boy, they're really having a tough time doing that. The people just aren't being faithful, and uh, there's a struggle between the faithful ones and the faithless ones. Now, um, if you, we're going to, again, we're going to be in chapter 10, and I mean, I'm sorry, the first 10 chapters. I'm going to cover quite a bit of uh, stuff today, but you just lock in with me. I'll keep it exciting because, look, every, throughout the scriptures, there's what you call timeless bridges, and that means what was said back then, what does it mean for us today? And that's what we're going to find out for you and I today because there's a lot that's said in these first 10 chapters that are for you and I. Now, first of all, the setting here in Numbers is uh, God is bringing forth uh, Israel uh, after um, being delivered out of Egypt. And they're camping out at the base of Mount Sinai. And they're there for 10 chapters the whole first year. 10 chapters, the first 10 chapters is basically the first year that they're there. They don't go anywhere. They just stay there at the mountain. And then uh, towards the end of that 10 chapters, they start breaking, they assemble, and they're getting ready to march across to the land that God has promised them. So here they are, and uh, we talked about the book, book of Leviticus already. Uh, that's a manual for priesthood, the, the tabernacle being set up. And why that's important is because now this tabernacle that we discussed in Leviticus is being set up right in the middle of their camp here in Numbers. And God is going to be in their midst. And this was a mind-blowing thing for these people who used to be in slavery and uh, God was somewhere out there, but now he's living among them. And this is a big deal. So the tabernacle was constructed at the very center of the camp. God's living there. They're at the base of Mount Sinai for a whole year. And they're getting ready to head out into the wilderness to possess the land God called them to, the promised land. And so this first section, what you see here is you see, first of all, the Israelites are being numbered, all right? And then he gives instructions on how the tabernacle will be set up at the center of the camp. And everything will be arranged around the tabernacle. And uh, talks about he uh, numbering, of course, I talked about that. And then he inserts the, the, the laws, the purity laws. And why is that in there? Well, you're going to find out today why God gave him that. And this instructions to be, to be obedient people, faithful unto God. Now, the Levites and the priests, um, they, the Levites had their place to live in the section around the center um, of the tabernacle, and the priests had their section, and the people had their section, and everything was very orderly and had boundaries, and everybody knew where they were supposed to be. 
and uh, God's presence at the center. So here we go. Uh, God is saying, why do we need purity laws? Well, he says, because you are now a kadash people. That means holy in Hebrew, because we're serving a holy God, a kadash God. And now you're going to be set out, and you're going to look different from the rest of the nations who worship demon gods. But God, Jehovah, Yahweh is set apart from all those demon gods. He is God. He is the one and the true God. And God says, now that you are set apart people, you're going to follow me. You're going to be faithful unto me. And you'll be evangelizing the rest of the world of, to show them this is what it looks like to worship God, the one true God. This is what a people look like who are faithful to God. And this is what our God looks like. And they were to display this to the world. So being faithful unto God was critical in this time. Not to be compromised or defiled in any way. And they're a distinct people. And they're going to show the world that. And God had rescued them and he brought them to himself. No different than today because you and I have been rescued by Jesus Christ through the cross. He has brought us to himself so that you and I can be a faithful and obedient people. So we can show the rest of the world this is what it looks like to serve the living God. This is what it looks like to have the life of Jesus flowing through your life and in your home and in your marriage and your family and your children. This is what it looks like. Will you come and join us? Come to the cross. And that's our call too, as a people to be faithful to that call. You know, there's a, there's a game that was played in school. Maybe you remember it. I don't know if they do it anymore. Back in the day, they used to, whatever the day is, <laughs> for me, it was a long time ago. It was, uh, it was called Red Rover, Red Rover. Remember that one? You had two opposing teams, and they would join hands. They would lock hands, and they would face each other. One team would yell out to the next team, Red Rover, Red Rover, and they'd pick somebody out. Send Johnny on over, and Johnny would blast out of that team. He would come running straight for that team, and his goal was to break through that team, to try to break through the hands that were locked. And if he was able to bust through, then he could go back to his team with one of the other team's members with him and grow his team. But if he couldn't break through, then he had to stay with the opposing team and grow their team. So you found out in Red Rover, Red Rover, that the team uh, was only as strong as its weakest link, right? Because if that team member could bust through, then they could, you know, dominate and win. Well, it's a picture of the children of Israel, really, and throughout the whole book of Numbers. You got these two opposing teams, in a sense, two big lines of people, and they're like facing each other, right? And the names of one team is faithful, and the name of the other team is faithless. Now, the faithful ones were the ones who were full of faith. They believed God. They believed His promises. They, they uh, believed God's character and who He was, and they trusted Him. And then the faithless team was the ones, obviously, with less faith. They didn't really trust God and his promises. They didn't believe him totally. They weren't real faithful. They questioned him all the time. Now, uh, it's not that the faithless team didn't have faith. They had faith. They were just eh, real weak in their faith. For instance, in Numbers 13, which we're going to look at next week, when Moses sends the 12 spies to spy out the land, you got 10 spies that came back. They brought a negative report. There's giants over there. We can't beat them. We're bugs, right? They got big fortified cities. There's no way. They were part of Team Faithless. But then you had Team Faithful, and that was Joshua and Caleb. They're like, hey, we can do this, man. They're going to be food for us. We're going to take these guys. God is faithful. We believe God's promises, man. We are full of faith. So you got these two opposing teams, 
Unfortunately, because of Team Faithless, the people rallied to them, most of them, and uh, that brought on bad consequences, of course. They couldn't enter the promised land. Everybody 20 years and older had to die out in the wilderness before the next generation could go in with Joshua and Caleb. That was Team Faithful. So you got this whole thing going on, this whole theme of faithfulness through numbers. You'll see it as you read through it. It gets pretty exciting the deeper you get into it. It's a big idea. So who's going to trust God, right? Who's going to be the one? Who will be counted among the members of Team Faithful, right? Or who's going to be in Team Faithless? Well, faithfulness is a term you don't hear a whole lot about nowadays. It's not commonly used anymore, this term faithful. Unless, of course, you got an old dog. Yeah, old dog is faithful. Old dog, I've had that dog for a long time. Or my old car, you know, I'm an old faithful car, you know, it just runs. Depend on my old. Or how about retirement parties, you know? Uh, yeah, 25 years of faithful service. God bless your soul. You know, you got those kind of faithful things you hear. But other than that, you know, but when I say faithful, this is what I mean. I mean reliable, dependable, consistent, and trustworthy. I mean, no, that's kind of tough to find nowadays. Yeah. Especially if you're a boss. You're always looking for those faithful employees. Who's going to, you know, really tough? Interesting Bible verse in the Good News Translation, Proverbs 20, verse 6, 6 says this. Everyone talks about how loyal and faithful they are, but just try to find someone who really is. <laughs> That's Proverbs, right? It's difficult to find those genuinely faithful people. If you go to Yellowstone National Park, the big attraction there is uh, the geyser called Old Faithful. How many have heard of Old Faithful? Yeah, and you know what's interesting? There's nothing real special about this geyser. I mean, you could go there and see other ones that are much larger, more powerful, more beautiful, more color. But what is so unique and special about Old Faithful? Well, it's because it's faithful. Guaranteed, on the money, if you go see Old Faithful, that thing is going to spout every 27 minutes. Amazing, isn't it? That's never changed. So people go there and marvel. They go, here it is, here it is, five, four, three, two, all of a sudden, psh, all right, okay, let's, you know, they move on. It's true, it's faithful, that's what, the, you know. So, here it is, we're in the first ten chapters of Mount, sitting at Mount Sinai for one whole year, right? And they're preparing to, for conquest, by, but the first thing they do is they celebrate the Passover, it's interesting. Why did they do that to start with before they numbered the soldiers and the organization and all the tribes and everything, the priestly duties? Well, let, that's where we're going to start. Uh, celebrate the Passover, or I would call it faithful to Jesus. That's where we start. And this is all the way up to Numbers chapter 9. It talks about this because they've been there for a year, but before they head out and start their second year in this journey, God says, you don't go anywhere until you honor and celebrate this Passover. And it says here in the very verse, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of Sinai in the first month of the second year. And they came out of Egypt. So as he said, have the Israelites celebrate the Passover at the appointed time. Well, this is the beginning of their second year of freedom. They're commemorating God's awesome deliverance out of Egypt. Uh, what happened there was they were instructed while they're in Egypt to slaughter the firstborn, put the blood of the lamb over slaughter the firstborn, slaughter the lamb, and put, take, take that blood and put it over the doorposts of their house. Therefore, when the angel of death came through in the final plague, that was the linchpin that broke the back of Pharaoh's control, the angel of death came over 
and all the firstborn of the Israelites that were spared, except for the Egyptians, theirs perished. And that was the last and final plague, the blow that set them free from Egypt, and they marched out. And uh, that is a clear picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the world, who died. His blood was shed for you and I, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, the Bible says. And now death passes over you and I, because we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We no longer have to fear death, hell, Satan, and sin, and the torments that are for those who haven't. We are free from that. We've been set free. And therefore, our first call is faithfulness to observe Jesus. And that's what we do. When you and I come here Sunday morning, this is, our, this is what we do. This is our resurrection testimony. This is why we're here today. We're celebrating Jesus who set us free. Our allegiance is to him. Hell, take notice. We serve Jesus, right? We are faithful unto him. We are called to that allegiance and faithfulness. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. By God, we're doing that today. That's who we stand for. That's who we live for. And we have, to, we have to make that statement to the world and to hell. And that's where we're at. That's where we're marching. And Jesus is the one who's going to carry us through, just like God is the one who carried the Israelites through. So here, here we are today, living our surrendered life to Jesus. This is Look, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I would encourage you strongly to make that decision. It'll be the greatest decision you'll ever make. Because that's where his character and his life and your freedom begins in Jesus Christ. That's where you discover what faithfulness truly is about because only God could truly work that in your life. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says this, God is faithful. Don't you love it? By whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Everyone has been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ, into relationship. Not everyone will respond to it. But everyone is called to that place, and it's at that place where God's character, Jesus Christ, begins to develop his character in you, and this faithfulness that is so cherished that we hardly see anymore. Well, let's go to the next one, because the next one is super important. Numbering of the soldiers. I would call it faithful in the fight. Faithful in the fight. Numbers chapter 1 says, take a census of the whole Israel uh, Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count, according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years and old, older and more able to serve in the army. Now, in Genesis, if that's the book of beginnings and Exodus is the book of redemption, then Numbers must be the book of warfare. Because Jews, Jews they're, in, they're, they're in enemy territory now. They're marching towards the land that God's going to help them to conquer. And so they are being organized for confrontation and for conflict. Now, the phrase able to go forth to war is used 14 times in this chapter. That's a lot. God is saying something. I mean, if God, think about this. If God were to number the believers today in church according to their ability to wage spiritual warfare, how big would the army be? How strong, how quick, how ready would we be? You know, there's, a, there's an emphasis on warfare in the Bible. It's really important. You don't know why the United States has a strong army. It's required for greatness and to advance peace. 
No different than in the Bible for the Israelites. God required them to have a strong army ready in season. It's a spiritual thing. It's amazing. Exodus 15.3 says, the Lord is a man of war. There's a warfare side of the, of the believer's life that we cannot ignore and we must engage. Military language is so frequently used throughout the New Testament among Jesus and especially Paul. The Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And there, there's enemy, enemies to fight, territory to gain. Joshua went into the promised land. He had the sword in hand. And it was violent and it was radical. God declared war on Satan long ago in Genesis chapter 3. That's where it happened. There's no neutrality in spiritual conflict. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. So faithful in the fight means ultimately faithful in prayer. That's where it begins and ends. The battles are won or lost on your knees. I believe that with all my heart. Whatever you are dealing with, whatever resistance you are up against, whether marriage, family, conflict, job, sickness, whatever it is, your first go-to, your first reflex must be God. Call on God. Run to Him. Run to Him. That's where your battles are going to be won. God first. Prayer moves the hand to God. You really believe that? You know prayer is the power of God on earth activated. That's what it is. Only thing the devil really is truly afraid of is a person who truly prays or calls on God and is quick to do it. Ephesians 4.12 For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of this dark age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly realms. Very clear that the only effective weapon against the enemy is prayer because prayerlessness really is powerlessness. Look, uh, Spiritual warfare, Jesus is saying this, Ephesians, Paul's saying this, spirit must confront spirit if you're going to win. You can't do it in the flesh. That's why he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When you do that, you better enter into conflict with people. You get bitter, get angry, get combative, uh, jealousy, whatever it may be, that's a flesh and blood battle. If you've entered that place, you've already lost. The enemy's won. He says, don't fight there. God says, there's an unseen realm manipulating all that. Go to your knees. Go to God. Rebuke what you're seeing in the name of Jesus Christ. Call down God's blessing and his will into that situation. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's where you win. The other way, you've already lost. Are you getting this? Okay, good. Because when you got saved, you got drafted into God's army. Did you know that? You did. It says, we wrestle not. Maybe we should say, we wrestle not, question mark. Because if you're not wrestling, you're not winning. You've got to be winning. Now, it's interesting because the priests are inserted at this point as the ones who are going to be ministering in the temple. And they were in charge of the ministry of worship, and the Levites assisted the priests. And so what they did was they developed this massive worship culture over Israel. And it was a, like this cocoon of glory, of worship, and, and it was ongoing, and it was very strategic, and it was intimate, and it was detailed, and it was powerful. And, and, and what's interesting is the, the priests and the Levites were not counted in the army. They were not in the army census. They were set apart from that. And people might look at that and say, well, there you go, worship and uh, warfare, uh, they're, they're not related. Got to keep them apart. Well, you know, not in God's economy. They go together. 
Because one of the major themes of Revelation is God's warfare against evil on earth, and he is receiving worship in heaven, right? Unless the people of God are in right relationship with the Lord in worship, then they can't face the enemies and defeat them in warfare. This is so important. The priests and the Levites led this worship culture for a purpose. You know, Psalms 149 says, says the high praises of God are in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Simultaneously, they are married, they are merged, and they must go together. Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles, you can read about it. Great story. He's a king. He's being attacked by a vast army, several nations up against him, little Israel. They're like, ah, so he's pretty freaked out. What does he do? He runs to God, proclaims a fast prayer. He seeks God, and God answers. He says, all right, Jehoshaphat, you want to win this battle? Then get your worship team together. Get the choir. Send them out ahead of your fighting men. Put them out there first and sing my praises. And that's what they did. They said, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And the, and the army's behind them, right, ready to go. And they're singing and they're worshiping. And God sends ambushes against the enemy and they all get wiped out. And the army goes, wow, that was pretty easy. We didn't even have to fight. Oh, you fought. You just fought God's way. When you're a worshiper, you win. That's why James 4, 7 says this. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Submit to God is an act of worship. It's an act of, Lord, I bow before you, worship you, call upon you. And then as I do that and align myself with you, all I got to do is resist the devil, and I win. It's worship and warfare. It goes together. You can't separate the two. Powerful. It's all a part of the call to fight the good fight. Well, I think we got the army picture. But the army was led in worship and cultivated. But the next one, three, chapter 3 and 4, two whole chapters are, are the signing of the duties. I call it faithful in service. That's the other aspect of faithfulness. Two whole chapters devoted to the Levites, men who served the Lord by assisting the priests in their temple ministry. The priests were the descendants of Aaron. They were the only ones allowed into the inner courts. Nobody else went in there. It was dangerous. You stayed out of there. That was God's thing. Holy, holy, powerful. Lightning, thunder. So the Levites, what did they do? They, they assisted the priests. That was their responsibility. So that the priests would succeed in everything they did in developing this worship culture. And so the Levites are the serving strength behind it. I mean, they had tremendous responsibility carrying, furnishing, setting up, and dismantling the tabernacle. Tremendous amount of detail um, uh, and the proper way of carrying and transporting these items and doing everything just right, because if you didn't, it was a matter of life and death. Let me tell you, it was serious stuff. So the Levite, they would begin to actually serve in this capacity at the age of 25, which means the young men took five years to train alone preparing for this work. That's how important it was. They had a great deal to learn about the sacrifices and tabernacle service, the dangerous mistakes that could be made. But they were very committed to serve the priests. Why? So the priests would succeed. That's why faithful in service is so important. That's why it's so, unfaithful, so important for you and I to be faithful in service. Why do we do it? So others can succeed. That's why you're called, in a sense, priests. We're a priesthood. We serve others so they will succeed. We are faithful in service. It requires us to be 
others-focused and not self-focused, giving our lives away for others, like we did last week when we just took the whole Sunday and hundreds of us went out and just served. So healthy, so powerful, so fruitful. What a great deposit. You know, faithfulness swims against the stream of contemporary culture. Contemporary culture says, what's in it for me? What are my needs? What are my hurts, my values, my struggles? What are my benefits? What are my profits? What do I need? What do I need? It's very selfish and self-centered. We get that. That's what advertising appeals to, you and what you need, all right? The whole ploy behind marketing. What's in it for me? But God says faithfulness is proven by others' directedness. So important by giving our lives away, looking to others, concentrating uh, not on our own self, but on that generous life that God calls us to. You know, Paul's talking about one of his disciples, Timothy, and he's kind of bragging on him because Timothy displayed this. He says, guy, man, he really, he really served the kingdom well. Look what he says about him in Philippians chapter 2. He says, I got no one like him. It says, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. This guy's incredible. He knows how to care for people. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Something about serving and character go hand in hand. The Bible teaches that faithfulness really is a choice. I, I can choose to change my attitude and focus uh, and, and get, get my focus off myself and what's best for me and instead, wh- wh- what's best for others, like the, like the Levites did to, for the priest? What's best for them? How can they succeed? That's our whole job and aim. What can I do to help others? How can I use my gifts, my talents, my everything about me to help the church thrive? I, I've discovered that um, being unreliable is actually being unloving. That's a tough one, ain't it? Okay, I'll move on. That was a good sign. How about a clean people? In other words, faithful to obey. It's another part of faithfulness you see. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 35 says this. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. That's what obedience is all about. What is in God's heart and mind for my life? How can I live that out? Faithfulness to obey. The book of Numbers, as you read through it, you'll see that the Israelites repeatedly disobeyed God and they suffered greatly for it. God laid down some plans and he laid down some real practical rules for daily living and life in the camp. They were to follow through with obedience because it it, what it was going to do was going to protect them and it was going to benefit them. They didn't see it that way all the time. Remember, Israelites were God's chosen people, separated from other nations now. They were called to evangelize the world. This is who God is. He is a holy God. Hebrews, he is a kadosh God, set apart. We are kadosh people. This is what it looks like to be faithful to God. Leviticus 26.12 says, I will walk among you and you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Leviticus chapter 11 says, For I am your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. In other words, he's saying, You shall be Kadesh. You shall be set apart. You shall be holy, dedicated unto me for my purpose. 
Now, let me set this for us, because you and I, when you come to Jesus and give your heart to him, you are positionally made right with him. You are made righteous, spotless, no shame, no guilt, no condemnation. Although our lives aren't perfect, we're working this out, but through Jesus, your faith in him, you're made right. And therefore, because of that, you are set apart. You and I are set apart unto God, not to earn anything, none of that stuff. It's just simply to I, I obey you, Lord. I'm set apart unto you, so I will follow you because as a result of that, it's going to protect me. It's going to protect my character, my integrity. I'm gonna, people are going to look at me and say, oh, that's what it looks like. You know, people should see Christians, as, and we should look different. We really should. And, there, and I say that unashamedly. There should be something distinct about us. But that's what it means to be about being set apart. Well, we talk about this holiness thing, really. Holiness, God is whole and wants us to become whole like him. That's really the essence of holiness, right? It's not this religious thing. Being set apart and called unto him to serve him. And, and the result of that, your, your boundaries get larger. Your influence grows. Your integrity grows. It's huge. It's blessings. It's wonderful. Now, Numbers is working this out, and God lays down all these laws like, Keeps them, he wants to keep them from physical defilement. He talks about leprosy and skin disease and how to protect themselves, how not to you know, touch certain things. And then he talks about interpersonal defilement that happens uh, when relationships, when people get offended with one another. He, he talks to them about that, how there needs to be unity among relationships. And then he talks about the marriage defilement and how to uh, be faithful in marriage. I mean, God hits it all. How does that apply to you? Well, first of all, again, what, what is it that defiles us? Well, when we walk in obedience, when we no longer set ourselves out and we begin to compromise ourselves, somehow we get defiled by the enemy. Our character gets soiled, our integrity. Disobedience will do that. It will corrupt your life. In other words, a mark of faithfulness is what kind of testimony am I really having with unbelievers? Not necessarily believers, but unbelievers. What do they think about me? You know, the Bible teaches that a pastor is supposed to be above reproach in the community, have a good reputation, not necessarily as unbelievers, our believers, but with unbelievers. Why? Because when that doesn't happen, the media gets a hold of it, and it's bad. The whole community suffers. One of the greatest examples of this is uh, Daniel. He was a governor. The other governors did not like this guy. They, they were always trying to find something wrong so they could complain to the king about this guy and bring him down. Daniel 6.4 says this. So the governors and satraps, they sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Why? Because he was faithful, honest, obedient. Boy, how would you like to have that kind of reputation at work, right? They just couldn't find anything to criticize about this guy, right? Blemishless, spotless, maintained a blameless testimony. You know, I think when God says, I like your testimony to be in that place, I'm not really sure he's really too concerned about church or the life group. I think he's more concerned about, did you do your best at work, right? Did you do your best um, on the ball field? Did you do your best in traffic when you're stuck in Wasilla during rush hour? Everybody wants to go to Big Lake on Friday. 
You know, Christians' reputation of being the most uh, dependable people in the marketplace in the community should be really good. Uh, there's a standard there we should be going after. Um, but that's just one part of being a clean people, of the faithfulness obey that, that involves relationships and how that affects people's, uh, impacts people for Jesus. But what about when he talks about skin disease, right, and leprosy and all this stuff? What is that? Well, leprosy is always a type of sin. Uh, but if you look at it in our context, the leprosy would be a type of defilement to the soul, what sin does to us. It defiles us. Let me give you a quick illustration of that before we wrap this up. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat every tree of the garden? What's happening? Eve was being tempted by the serpent, the devil, led to original sin with Adam as well. So obviously behind this temptation is a demon. Get it? Oh, we need to understand this, my friends. Look, whenever there's a temptation, we kind of cast off, oh, that's a little thought I just had. No, that's a demon talking. That's what a temptation is. Behind every temptation, there's a spirit trying to get you to do something. And the Bible's very clear. It says the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he will try to entice you in to destroy your life any way he can, even if it starts with something real small. You think, oh, that was just me. No, devil talking. The Bible's very clear about that. Behind it. So every time you're tempted, you got a choice. I'll obey God. I'll not allow defilement to happen. Or I will obey the devil, give in to that serpent behind that voice, open the door and be defiled. What happens? Until we repent and come clean. Give place to the temptation, you give place to the spirit behind it. That's a pretty, pretty big deal. But we need to understand what's going on out there. This is not a game. The devil plays for keeps. And he is crafty. And he will do whatever he can to suck you in and take you down. Ephesians, Paul talks about this. He gives a clear example. In Ephesians, Paul's talking to the spirit-filled, born-again church. He's talking to believers. And he says, as an example, he uses anger. He says, Ephesians 4, 26. He says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the devil, or don't let the sun go down on your wrath and give place to the devil. In other words, you get mad at somebody and get offended and stay mad and get angry and let the sun keep going down. He says, you've opened that door to that spirit behind that temptation. He says, he says you give the devil a place. In the Greek, that means topos. That means topography, occupiable place, territory. In other words, you give the devil influence, he, he defiles. He comes in. This is spiritual warfare. This is a big deal. 